0: Hello, and welcome to another Chemical Reactions podcast from the team at Rube Edison Public Affairs in Brussels. Today, we're going to explore two more aspects of the European Commission's Chemical Strategy for Sustainability. First, what those all too simple words, sustainable by design, might actually mean in practice? And second, how do we ensure that our use of chemicals does not get in the way of building a circular economy. I'm Chris Davis, a former member of the European Parliament, and with me are Steve George, an advisor to the aviation industry on REACH legislation, and Kevin Bradley, until recently, Secretary General of the International Bromine Council. And we are all three now senior advisors with Ruth Pedersen Public Affairs. Now, Kevin, let me get my head around the first issue and try to sum it up, and then maybe you can tell me how I've got it wrong. The EU Commission says it wants the European chemicals industry to be a world leader and a huge economic success. It wants chemicals to be produced in ways that maximizes their benefits to society. It wants future regulation to stimulate innovation and bring together safety, the need to protect human health and the environment, together with issues like reducing energy needs and CO2 emissions and resource efficiency matters like water consumption, it wants to ease ends product recycling quote strengthening consumer confidence,
1: amongst other things. Well, sounds pretty good. Kevin, what's not to like? Well, Chris, I think we can like all of that. It's, as you know, as a politician, uh, it's very important to set a vision. And the European Commission have set a vision. Now, the devil is in the detail when it comes to actually bringing this about safe and sustainable by design is not in itself new. It's been around a while, especially the old ideas of, you know, sustainable chemistry, green chemistry. These these concepts have been there for quite a few years, and there's quite a a lot of academic and also practical guidance out there for, for companies. What's different here, though, is that the policymaker is implying that before a chemical goes to market, there should be some kind of safety and sustainability assessment carried out. Now, that's, that's new. That's a new thing. Uh, we have in REACH, as you know, a requirement for chemical producers when they're registering their substances to produce a chemical safety report and other information uh, related to the use of the chemicals they put on the market. But this would be an added uh, element if you're familiar with physical planning for, say, a new factory. It's a bit like when the person building the factory is required to sort of carry out an impact assessment, an environmental impact assessment, before they get uh, planning permission. This is something we've had in the EU for many years. Before you place a chemical on the market, this is my interpretation, you would need to carry out a safety and a uh, sustainability assessment, safe and de- sustainable by design. So in other words, that's the the, the logic they're trying to, to to bring forward. So that sounds too difficult because there'd be presumably a, a tick box
0: of, of the things you have to assess.
1: Uh, indeed. And, and in fact, they've started that process with, the Commission's Scientific Service, the Joint Research Center, um, working on this. They've been working on it for about a year, and they recently, in March, came forward with a draft report which sets out the concept, uh, the principles, and indeed what you just pointed out, not so much a tick box, but rather a stepwise methodology uh, leading from an assessment of the safety aspect right through to the sustainability aspects, which includes things like climate change, energy, water, air, biodiversity impacts, etc. The issue is, though, that in having a methodology like that is great, but how is it supposed to be mediated? How is it to be promoted and supported? Otherwise, it's just a nice piece of guidance and you can say, look, industry, you can be safe and sustainable by design, by following that. But if I'm not compelled to do it, I'll say, that's very nice. I'll show it to my sustainability people, and they might like it, they might not like it. But if I'm not compelled to do it, I'm not going to do anything with it. Steve, you've um, just been sort of shaking your head. I'm just wondering if you're thinking it's not quite as
2: simple as Kevin is saying. No, I think uh, Kevin paints a very good picture, but the devil is in the detail. Ultimately, in the same way that a a weed is simply a plant in the wrong place, in an environment that doesn't suit it, any chemical substance, which is all around us all the time, you know, oxygen, water, if it's too pure or in the wrong place, it can cause a problem. So when you go through a stepwise methodological approach to say, is this substance safe under all circumstances? Does this substance have no environmental impact at any point in its life cycle? What is the impact of this substance, whether it's production use or recycling on things like CO2 production from a climate change point of view? You're going to end up with no substance or pretty much no substance that is pervading in absolutely every way. So yeah, there is no such thing as a whitelist of these substances are okay to use. This means choices. So for example, a chemical substance used in anti-corrosion plating Maybe carcinogenic in the factory and carefully controlled in the factory, but it means the end product lasts a lot longer. Meaning it has to be replaced less. You don't have to remanufacture, which is better for the environment and climate change. The moment you start saying I'm making choices, then it becomes nuanced. It sounds like black and white. It is safe and sustainable by design. But in reality, someone's making choices. So the devil is in the detail in the process and the enforcement.
0: So has the commission given any indication while it's been discussing its strategy about whether this process would apply simply to chemicals being produced in large quantities? I mean, if you're producing some sort of, I don't know, some, some, some minor additive to a paint, would you have to
1: go through the entire exercise? Well. In the chemical strategy for sustainability, there's a kind of a clue there. They talk about safe and sustainable by design, focusing on providing a function or service for chemicals while avoiding volumes and chemical properties that may be harmful to human health and the environment. And then they specify specific groups. They are attempting to both look at the volumetric side of things, so the quantity and also specific hazard uh, categories. I should say, by the way, that Steve has pointed out, one of the interesting things that's in the methodology proposed by the JRC is that the safety aspect would be an entirely hazard-based approach. So in other words, only looking at intrinsic hazard properties of a substance. That of course, as Steve pointed out, has a little bit of a problem in the sense that everything everything is potentially hazardous in the wrong dose. So I'm not quite sure how this will match up with the current risk regulatory but, approach we have for regulating chemicals. Well, indeed, that, that's, this, this is the old argument, isn't it? What matters most, hazard or
0: risk, well, it's got to be the risk, isn't it? It's got to be the extent to which people might be exposed to,
1: uh, to, to something. If it's simply happening... What's it called? Intermediate chemicals. One of the sort of questions I've got, I had a lot of questions after reading it. Um, one of them is is a question as to whether their approach is to apply to all existing chemicals and materials or only certain groups or only to new chemicals. In many cases, chemicals are not necessarily often used into materials. So we think of plastics, for instance. Who's going to carry out these assessments? Is it going to be ECHA, the European
0: Chemicals Agency, with a lot of extra staff, or is it going to be consultants employed by the individual companies?
1: Again, this is this is a, a, a question that arises from this. For instance, if it was incorporated into a, a REACH requirement, and that's a possible avenue for this. In other words, that there's a, a, a new requirement put into REACH that, in addition to all other things for registering or having substances on the market, you had to have this sustainability assessment. Well, then you're talking about a quite significant resource requirement for that, to carry out the assessments, to review the assessments, to arbitrate on the assessments. All of these would be resource issues. At the moment, and and I'll hand back to Steve who's waving at me here, I, I think echo they're already struggling. I think Bjorn Hansen, as he was leaving, said, give me more resources. I'm really uh, up to here with it. Uh, to throw this into the mix would be, I think, uh, a further challenge to them. Steve, I don't know what your view on this would be.
2: Well, obviously, we already have within the registration principles that the idea of an exposure scenario leading into a safety data sheets. And in the safety data sheet, we've had, if you like, the, the expected uses and also uses advised against. Now, the logical thing would be, this is safe and sustainable by design for the intended uses only. And if you use it in another way, then it's perhaps no longer fulfilled those principles.
0: So during the consultation process, what's the industry been saying to the to, to European the Commission?
1: Well, well, I think, the discussion around this has been uh, relatively um, quiet or muted um, over the past year, partly because the commission, when they were challenged about this, this concept, initially by industry, Cefic, and others, they replied very quickly and said, hold on a second, let's not have a discussion yet. Let's wait and see what the actual definition and methodology will be. So in other words, they deflected the discussion into this exercise being conducted by the JRC. The JRC report, by the way, is out for public consultation, and I'm sure uh, stakeholders will be responding to it um, in detail. So the commission is actually hedging its bets. It wants to see what the JRC is going to come up with, see if it's practical, and then if they feel bold enough, they'll propose something in the REACH review are the REACH uh, revision proposals, uh, which will refer to this sustainability uh, requirement.
2: And the industry viewpoint will be cautious. I mean, if you argue against something, are you arguing against what they're trying to do or how they're trying to do it? Now, since we don't know the how, then the chemical industry must say, well, we applaud what you're trying to do. But, you know, we're going to wait until we see the detail."
1: Yeah, I I think that's right. It's very difficult to argue against the basic principle and goal here, which is to improve overall sustainability of different value chains, including the chemical value chain and materials that flow from that. I mean, you've been following, Chris, the the discussions in the uh, battery regulation. We've also just recently seen the commission's proposal for an eco-design uh, regulation to promote sustainable products. These are all going in the same direction. They're all promoting this notion of we need broader uh, sustainability looked at when we're looking at chemicals. So it's very hard to argue against that. As Steve says, the issue is the how, who's going to do it, who's going to arbitrate it, in other words, who's going to say whether X chemical is safe and sustainable by design and Y is not. And if you're somewhere in the middle, how do what what, what happens to you? And- let me let me let me turn on to the to the other aspect, which is this this
0: issue of putting products on the markets which fit in with the whole circular economy agenda, and the difficulty of, of of well, for example, take plastics of recycling plastics when almost every sort of plastic seems to have a different chemical composition, different additives in it. Steve, I know you you've you've been working on this, haven't you? Because you work with the downstream users. What are the wh-
2: how, how, how do we solve the riddle? Well, first of all, there's probably two, two big viewpoints which are in direct conflict today that we somehow need to bridge between. One viewpoint is that we need to get on with uh, recycling of materials, which means we need to perhaps ease up a little bit on the, the waste hazard controls to enable secondary materials to be made from uh, materials already produced that's going through the waste life cycle now. The other viewpoint is that we need to first stop contaminants getting into those products so that when they get to the other end of the life cycle, we get cleaner materials going into the recycling stream. And, And almost it's become like two religious extreme viewpoints and there's no bridging between them. The problem is that the latter view means we cannot do anything about what's already out there. Now, some industry participants would say, but we can deal with some of the contaminants in those materials, including things like brominated flame retardants. Provided we know what's in there, we can manage the materials are in there. Now, the question is, how do they know what's in there? And this is where the Waste Framework Directive introduced a thing called the Substances of Concern in Products, or SCIP, database which obliges industry to provide an immense amount of information into a database so that recyclers can use it, understand what they're dealing with and therefore better manage the waste. Reality, that's not going to work. They barely make any money today. Well, yes. uh, I think back more than 20 years, the end of life vehicles
0: directive. And I seem to remember that um, all the different components in a car the different plastics had to be stamped, I think, because there were different plastics being used. But, but when I, I've been to places where cars are being crushed and, you know, they're coming out in little waste streams, but the the, the amount of separation that's taking place, other than can be done mechanically, is, is pretty minimal.
2: Hmm. That's exactly right. If you go to a wayside, you know, they're putting all the TVs in one corner and they're putting the washing machines in a different corner. They're not separating them by brand, product number, serial number disassembling them to find that last component, removing it and then cleaning up the waste stream like that. You're absolutely right. It is better to control it at the end of the process saying, these are the contaminants we suspect might be there. Let's test for them. And if they're at an acceptable level, then we can put the secondary material back on the market with confidence. And if you get a cleaner product, maybe you can get a high price and maybe that's the way to bridge the gap. Yeah. Okay, uh, Kevin,
0: um, Steve mentioned brominated flame retardants mm. in plastics and you were Secretary-General of the Brogdon Council. So, what sort of solutions to this have you put forward to the Commission?
1: Well, I think first, just to emphasize that plastics recycling, you know, is, is in Europe is pretty much mostly mechanical recycling. So, it doesn't matter what the input is, it's all uh, controlled in the process. And the recyclers, certainly I'm very familiar with the electronic waste plastics and electronic waste recycling. They do a fantastic job in sorting out plastics with different additives, different types of plastics. And of course, they're looking for the valuable plastics and they sort them out. And then as far as the brominated plastics containing brominated flame retardants, these are very easily sorted from other plastics because bromine is heavy density. It's very dense, very heavy. So it sinks. So it's very easy to, in the recycling process, to uh, extract it. All that plastic, plus a lot of other waste plastics, something like 55%, no, 45% of, of waste plastic from waste electronic um, products is sent for incineration. That's That's a reality. That's just simply the system As it is today. Now, luckily over the last, pretty much the last eight or nine years, maybe even 10 years, the European Commission and industry value chains have been working on a a range of projects for taking this 45% that they used to throw away and trying to further extract value from it. So removing any hazardous substances, including legacy brominated flame retardants, and then recovering that plastic. These techniques now are being scaled. But again, the problem with the uptake is what Steve just mentioned. The recycling industry works on very, very, very small margins. Even the slightest destabilization changes in oil prices, all of these things can have um, a major impact on their operations. For them to take on a new technology, in other words, that somebody says, look, this project has been fantastic. We've proven that you can recover this this amount of plastic. They'll say, that's fantastic, but I'm going to need help. And unfortunately, it's very difficult to go around helping every single recycler. They're all competitors. So uh, something needs to be done to try to further incentivize recyclers taking up this technology. One thing that will help is the commission's commitment, and I think industry has welcomed this, to making recycled content mandatory for certain products. Now, of course, you have to work out what the level is, but if you do that, you provide an incentive, you provide a driver. So that's how I would see we'll address a lot of this, uh, this, these problems yeah. in the future. Just let's not forget the word economy
0: when we talk about circular yes. economy. It's got to be able to work in the in the yeah. market economy. It's got to be a, there's got to be a business case for doing it. Otherwise, no one's going to recycle. I, I, I know I know Steve. You've talked a lot about the need for road trials, if you like, for testing some of the some of the possibilities, to, rather than simply introducing legislation and expecting everyone is going to be able to apply it equally and effectively, and it's you know it will solve all the problems. Whereas in some cases, it creates problems.
2: Yes, absolutely. I mean, probably both safe and sustainable by design and things like uh, this skip database would have far better been done with a small scale trial to see how it would actually work in complex supply chains in practice before it was tested any further. It would be lovely to see with the skip database that recyclers were actively using it and getting better let's say, market access or returns on investment as a result of using it. But I've seen, I've seen no demonstration that people are using it for that purpose. Thank you for mentioning the economy. I mean, Adam Smith referred to the invisible hand of the market. And what Kevin was referring to were asking for greater recycled content. I mean, I, I, I applauded the, the batteries regulation recently by setting a recycled content level and escalating it over the time. That creates business certainty necessary for investment in new facilities and creates a demand for material, which would uh, thereby get a price and therefore incentivize that recycling. I mean, that's, that's making the market work for the environment. So I don't think we should treat economy from a money point of view, as a dirty word, we should use it as a tool to advance the social need.
0: And that idea you suggested early on that there could be thresholds set, and uh, recyclers would would um, you know, take a sample and and assess whether or not they were yeah. within that threshold. That sounds a cumbersome and slow and expensive process.
2: The, the key is to know what you're testing for and having adequate methods. But we've seen through the COVID pandemic how things can accelerate when there's a clear enough need and, and, and a societal need to invest in it. But if you don't have testing, where, where does that leave you? You're leaving recyclers to guess how good that material is, it's reliant on a data from a database being fully complete and accurate and accounting for anything that's been added to it through repair or, possibly contamination through use for its life cycle. I mean, without testing it's hopeless anyway. So we need testing regardless. European level has got to be making sure that the
0: rules, which are being introduced, are being enforced. Otherwise, you know, you've got a lot of rogue traders dodging the rules, perhaps. Obviously, not with some of the fantastic organisations with which you worked in the past, but you know it, it happens in the in the recycling world, and all uh, we end up all we end up destroying our own recycling industry, perhaps, and importing products from China. Yeah.
2: Yes, test, so test method enforceability is dependent on test methods as well as if you like process and audit checks. Absolutely yeah. agree with you, Chris. Okay, so in summary, what's the summary here? Uh, first of all, you
0: you'd love some trials. I mean, trials not very... When, when the commission introduces legislation, it's, it, it doesn't usually say, well, we, we're, we are introducing le- legislation and new proposals, but we're actually not going to implement them until we've tested some trials to just stop the way the commission usually works. You'd want manufacturers, I suppose, still to keep on top of this and to make representations all the way through the process. Am I right? Absolutely correct. And how will they do that? Is that through that? they go through CEPIC through the industry organizations or...
2: Well, industry organisations at all levels. I mean, Cefic uh, does a very good job at the upstream end of the supply chain, but it cannot reasonably represent the concerns downstream as well. So, all all trade associations.
1: Yeah, I'd agree with that. All trade associations need to be uh, alive to this, um, and I would uh, certainly on on the safe and sustainable by design. Okay, let's not be let's not be negative about it. Let's be positive. I think it needs it needs a big discussion. My preference would be like Steve would be to say, okay, we've got this methodology. I think it should be road tested uh, just to see if it is, is it workable. Um, so some piloting of this. This was done before, by the way, with uh, you might remember this thing called the product environmental footprint which the European Commission developed uh, back originally in 2013. They road tested that, they piloted with different um, value chains, different sectors, and now they have a, p- a pretty good methodology, which they're now going to use in legislation. If you look at the batteries regulation, there's a requirement to undertake a an assessment of the carbon footprint of a battery and the methodology that's to be used is this product environmental footprint. So the commission can be consistent and can be logical when it does this. And I think the same approach probably should be looked at with respect to the safe and sustainable by design concept in the the next few months. That's certainly, if I were commenting to the JRC, I'd say, guys, great, give us some examples, road test it. That's just
0: about it. So it's almost goodbye from me. That's Chris Davis and my colleagues at Rip Pedersen Public Affairs, Kevin Bradley and Steve George. In these podcasts over recent weeks, we've been tossing around thoughts about the European commission's ideas for an updated chemical strategy. The commission of course has been consulting. Now we hope to come back with another podcast when when the commission has actually come forward with firm proposals and put them to the European Council and Parliament. When's that going to be, Steve?
2: There's a big legislative revision to REACH, for example, that is part of this. And there are many elements feeding into it, including the things we've covered on previous podcasts, such as things like mixture assessment factors or reformed authorization restriction. These are really quite complex. So whilst the target is around the end of this year, I expect it fully to slip into next year.
1: Kevin, I would concur with that. I think the Commission have, you know, set a a, a vision here. Uh, there's a level of ambition, but I think if they want to really do this right, um, they're going to. They should make more time and less haste with this. It's not. It's not a a sort of a, an excuse to sort of delay things. No, get it right. Otherwise, you'll spend uh, the next few years after that listening to industry complaining, looking at potential negative impacts and then having to correct it expensively uh, later on. So we want sustainability for chemicals, the chemical industry. That's fine. Great. Everybody wants that. Even the chemical industry wants that. But let's do it right.
0: Well, you heard it here first, next year.
1: Thanks for the guesses,
0: Kevin, Steve, and thank you all for listening.